Hey everyone, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our vantage point as ministers, as theologians, and as folks who just love movies. Then we gather around for a conversation, and this week, our guest Derek Weston has asked us to go watch Get Out, and so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask him what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Get Out for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be February 25th, the second Sunday in Lent. And finally, in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another small little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far, I want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Derek Weston is an ordained PCUSA minister, currently serving as the neighborhood organizer for Arlington Presbyterian Church in Arlington, Virginia. He's also a fellow podcast host, both with God Complex Radio, with friend of the show Carol Howard Merritt, and the Gospel According to Marvel with Zane Sanders. Derek, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Thanks for, for inviting me. I, I'm glad to be with you guys. So, gentlemen, we are a couple of weeks away from the Oscars, and there are nine movies up for Best Picture, some of them with better chances than others, to be sure. But at least in the kind of cultural ether that I swim around in, there is no question about what was the most important, if not also the best film of 2017, which is Jordan Peele's Get Out. For listeners who haven't seen it, Get Out is the story of a young black man, Chris, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who goes with his white girlfriend to her parents' home for the weekend, only to discover that he has stumbled into a horrific and nightmarish plot against both his body and his life. Peel makes this transition seamlessly from the sketch comedy world of his former Comedy Central days to this perfectly executed piece of suspense horror and our regular listeners know that I am a wuss when it comes to suspense horror, so all those previous caveats still apply. I watched this movie with the lights on and occasionally like, had to squeeze and close my eyes. But, but Get Out is more than jump scares. It is also, and I think more importantly, a kind of cultural landmark for its depiction of American racism, white supremacy, and all of the casual ugliness that follows. But I get ahead of myself. Derek, you recommended this for us. You kick us off. Why this movie now, and particularly for us in the church? How does Get Out help us think about our theological moment? Well, I think there's a couple very important things that this film does for us. Um, one, I think um, one of the things that was very interesting, particularly when the Golden Globes came out, was the idea of categorization of the film. There was this idea that it was going to be up for uh, best comedy. Um, and, and I found that a very interesting conversation because depending on, on how you're watching it, while there are definitely comedic elements to it, um, <laughs> Get Out was certainly not intended to be a comedy. Uh, um, it was, it was meant to be a horror film and it was meant to be a horror film that was particularly, um, capturing the, the African-American experience. Um, I, I think part of the question that is is asked of the film is is what do we what do we ask of people, uh, particularly people of color, 
Um, when they are in predominantly white, when they are swimming in the milieu of, of white society, of white supremacy, of, of, of white dominant culture. Um, and, and it asks, it asks us some, some questions about, um, what do we, what do we ask of our neighbor? How do we, how do we love our neighbor in some, in some really practical ways? Um, you know, I think what's interesting in this film is that we see um, a lot of the characters, a lot of the African-American characters who are um, already in the sunken place, um, which I think is just a, a phenomenal, um, phenomenal tool for kind of describing those who have already kind of surrendered uh, their free will kind of surrendered their their selves and surrendered their identity to powers of white supremacy, to powers of white dominance. Um, and they kind of find themselves re-enslaved. Um, and I, I think there's so there's there's ways that we need to talk about this, particularly I'm 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 a Presbyterian minister. The PCUSA is something like 91% white. And it really is important for the church to think about how do we how do how do we ask people of color um, like myself how do we ask people of color to engage in the larger life of the church? Are we asking them to surrender uh, pieces of themselves when they when they come into um, you know are we ask, actually loving their whole self or are we loving what they can give to us are they loving the 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 physical strength that they give the physical beauty do we like the optics of diversity more than we like the reality of diversity um do we do we um you know i i i cringe sometimes uh even at the church that i currently serve uh you know when um we do uh, African-American spirituals, and I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, God, you guys really aren't getting this clapping thing down at all. It's the do we, do we want, you know, um, the question that I feel that is kind of hovering around a lot of this movie is, is, um, is do, we, do we love black culture? without loving black people. And that can be true of, of all of the races that come into our church. Um, and, and, and we have to deal, we have to deal with, you know, um, yeah, I mean, the other piece of it, and I forgive me if I'm rambling. Um, the other piece of this is that what, what Chris steps into is, is this progressive home you know, uh, Bradley Whitford's character saying, you know, uh, I would have I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have. Um, and the 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 pretense of 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 progressiveness, of, of being accepting and being um, being uh, welcoming to diversity while really just, again, wanting wanting to uh to to have the superficial elements of of what it means to have diversity as a part of your life. Um, so there's, I mean, there's all sorts of ways to go. I mean, I think there's there's elements of of um, you know really dealing with what you know what Jim Wallace calls the original sin of of our country, which is which is uh, racism. Um, 
and and slavery. I mean, this this what what essentially happens is is, is slavery by another form. Um, and and it's mm-hmm. it's real. There's there's a there's a lot of different ways that you can go with this film. It's 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 very deep. It's very layered. Um, uh, there's a, there's a lot of different directions you can go with it. So Derek, I think I mean it. Like you said, it's it's a really carefully constructed film in yep. order to like sh- like make sure that these layers are fitting on top of each other and 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 the ways in which Chris has to deal with this sort of casual racism of people who believe themselves to um, to love black people in um, in general. Mm-hmm. I think is is part of this, right? Like there is there is there's only the ever the objectifying of a group of people um, and believing them to be totally monolithically the same and then saying, well, I appreciate this monolith instead of saying like, no, there's difference among all of this, right? Like there is no universal human um, to whom we like say like, well, that's a black person because black people have a variety of different expressions and, um, and, they don't operate monolithically. And what's interesting to me watching this movie again this time is the ways in which all of the subjectivity of all of, of Chris and all of the black people in this movie are, is totally denied. Yeah. It's they're, 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 they're never given to say like, yes, I have this complex identity that's built from history and community, but I'm also myself. Like I have, I have skills that are unique to me and that's what it means to sort of be in human community is to be able to recognize the the history and communities of which people are a part, but not see them as totally predetermined by those communities or to see something about those communities as totally innate in everybody. And I think that's what's interesting is that, you know, the, the characters, the, the white characters are actually not interested in that, at all, <laughs> they're not interested in in the individual um, histories, the introdu- the individual characteristics. You know, the closest thing that comes is is um, uh, the 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 blind art dealer who is looking at Chris and saying, "I I want your eyes," because he recognizes that Chris right. has a good photographic eye, but. Um, but even that is mm-hmm. is is still somewhat a superficial understanding of of what Chris brings to the table. It's still not really like what is it about your perspective? What is it about your history right. that gives you such a good glimpse into um, being yeah, able to? And, and can you- I have can I have what you have without? your blackness too in the center of this, right? Like he he brackets out the experience that gave Chris the eyes to begin with. He just sees them as another innate part of his physiology rather than recognizing that there is a whole host of experiences that has given him the type of perception, which I think is so central to this movie. Like eyes are Mm. like such a central image of this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Chris is always looking at people and and you and you get the sense that he is an able photographer in part because his his powers of perception are are very uh, keen and he's constantly looking around and you see him try and make eye contact with people and this is this is what stood out to me again on second watching was all of the times that he tries to make eye contact with the black people who are in the sunken place 
Yeah. And realizes that he's not getting the type of eye contact back. Yeah. Right. And that, and that is very disconcerting to him. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's something about like waiting for recognition and never getting it that um, seems central to Jordan Peele's understanding of, of what it means to be an African-American in, in predominantly white spaces. There's, there's no one to like look at and, and, and affirm that like what you're seeing is what you're seeing. Right. And, and that, is, that is something that people of color often look for. I mean, again, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the head nod that we give to each other when we're in predominantly white spaces. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a sign of, of recognition of like, yeah, I'm here too. Um, I exist and, oh, somebody else might actually see me um, and see, you know, my, my personhood, the hope that someone will actually see my humanity. Um, and I, I think that's what Chris is looking for in the midst of, you know, and, and, and I think we, we have to also add this to, you know, all of this is happening in the context of something that's, that's very human, which is universally human, which is going home to meet yeah, uh, right. uh, a, a girlfriend's right, parents, sure. right? Like that's uh, a partner's parent. Like that's a, that's a universal experience, which has its own awkwardness to it. And a lot of what, what happens early on in the film could be chalked up to the awkwardness of getting to know another family but it's when you, as it goes along, you realize that no one is actually seeing Chris as a human, um, and and something uh, that becomes universal becomes this very particular kind of horror. Well, one of the things that I think is is kind of fascinating about that is is just the way that Peel plays with some of the genre conventions there too. So that, you know, Chris's character, instead of being like the victim of the horror movie who doesn't see what's happening until it's too late, uh, he, he actually kind of, it, one gets the impression that he sees that there's something messed up here a long time before, um, but before it, it is kind of fully revealed yeah. to him. And of course, his his best friend at home is like entirely <laughs> on it from the very beginning. Like, is his diagnosed everything from a phone call too? There's there's something um, kind of beautiful about okay, what, what what would happen if we set up one of these in some ways a kind of conventional horror movie plot? Except we're gonna arm the protagonist with enough savvy to realize what's going on. Uh, that that I, I found um, just from a genre standpoint really kind of endearing. And I think what's interesting is is um, Chris's friend, Chris's best friend, um, ends up. Be, I don't know if you guys saw this in the theater, um, but if if you did see it in the theater, Chris's yeah. friend ends up being a stand-in for the African American audience. Um, oh, interesting. He is. He is. Um, he is us watching Chris going. You need to get the hell out of there. <laughs> um, and and he's he's a wonder. I mean, I mean, he is he is. I mean, it's not a comedy, but he is the comic relief of the film. But he's also he's also the black audience watching the film. 
he is he is the character who is is giving the insight to um you know because you know the 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 cliche of this is here's what happens to black people in horror films right uh, right and, right. and and you know that that genre convention is also being subverted in that like what do you what do you do when the only uh, uh, victims are black like someone's gonna have to survive this thing um, but I think you know it's such a it's such an important character because it, it is it is the the uh, the audience in a in a sense so I Matt to to your point Chris does see all of this but he does have this this weakness that the that the mother is able to like pull in on mm. and sure. what, what's really interesting to me is the ways in which she is able to gather some moment of of shame and doubt and then and and then use that as the means of putting the person in the sunken place right so they're constantly questioning whether or not they did the right thing whether or not they were, you know, that they should have acted more, that they should have gone out. And, and that shame is the thing that, like, presses them back into uh, the paralysis. And I, I thought that was just such an astute way to think about the ways in which shame can, can do that, but the ways in which um, people in power can prey on people's doubt in their own lives as a, as a mm. means of control. Um, and say like, well, you know, uh, you know, can we really trust you? Because look at this in your past, or look at the and 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 I think Peel is is recognizing something pretty pretty astute here with with the ways in which you you attempt to control a group of people, um, not through force, but by um, pressing them back into sort of moments of shame and. and anxiety and embarrassment but i think yeah. isn't isn't that what happens in a lot of isn't that what happens in a lot of church situations though of right uh, leaders leaders being able to use the idea of of sin and the sins of the folks in church to um make them more devoted to the institution make them more devoted to the congregation um and 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 using shame and using regret and using all of the you know um all of the all of the uh regrets that we have um to make us put it put us in the situation where we feel like we we owe our devotion to whether it's to a leader to an organization to a church um and and that that guilt and shame is really kind of hung over our heads right and we owe it and when we see something that maybe we don't like very much we don't say anything right so so we hear we hear right. you know the african-american spiritual song and we realize this doesn't sound like it should <laughs> and i i probably should say something um but you sit there right like i i'm keenly aware that most churches sing them and but haven't totally reconciled with the the race terror from which they were born right you know like um and i think that might be a prerequisite for their singing <laughs> or at least we need to like recapture that in order for 
a, a predominantly white audience to find not just expression of worship, but um, but some some honoring of the source from which they came. Right. So, Derek, I want to come back to this this idea of how do you categorize a movie like this? Mm. Um, because I think Jordan Peele at different times has also said things like, uh, "I didn't make I didn't make a comedy; I made a documentary." Right. Right. Um, and I think he's he's doing this to be provocative in in some ways, but I think that there's a part of him that's very serious about this. Yeah. That that wants to say like, no, don't don't see this as a piece of confection because you actually don't appreciate horror movies. Like I do. I think that they're, I mean, he's from his perspective, he loves horror movies. Right. And he sees that the sees them as, as an important and powerful medium to talk about mainly to talk about otherness, right? Because that's so central to the genre is like, who are you afraid of? Like yeah. what, what monster like haunts your dreams? And what's so fascinating about this movie is like the the monsters, you know, the white suburbs, right? And it's a a way for him to say like, well, let me tell you another story that I've never seen told. Yeah. Um. And to that, and to for that reason, I think he's of course working with the in the conventions of the horror genre, but in some ways he's trying to like press past the conventions of the of the genre because. The subject matter is um, is something new. Well, and I think, yeah, I think if you're if you're a student of of if you're a student of the horror genre, um, like he is, you recognize that um, our horror, our modern horror genre, kind of got birthed out of Vietnam. Like, it's how do you deal with um, how do you deal with the traumas? Of of what's going on in the world, and so you put it into a kind of controllable, a, a controlled setting um, that that people can experience the fear, knowing that they're not actually physically in danger. Um, this has the feeling, though. I mean, it's it's not a it's not the chain, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not Freddy. It's not Jason. It's a very um, it's a very it's a much more realistic horror for mm-hmm. for people of color. It's it's a lot more uh, pressing. It does feel like I mean there are for for me and I think for a lot of other African Americans who spend a lot of time in white spaces, there are definitely um, scenes in the film where it's like, yeah, I've had that conversation. Um, I've had that experience. Um, you know, um, and and I think it's it it it, it does ha- it does take on a a you know to, to call it a documentary. I do think was 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 provocative, although like there is you know I think there's that's the only way to articulate the um, the realness um, for a lot of people and for a lot of people of color and their in their everyday experience. So I think that was. Um, it was it was necessarily provocative. I think it's interesting also because I think the the marketing around this movie is really curious. I, I didn't see it in the theater because I'm a horror movie wuss. And then as the kind of year went on, this came out what last February, yeah. um, and it had so much kind of momentum and conversation behind it. 
And eventually I kind of said, okay, I've, I've, I've got to watch this. And I went and I watched the trailer. Did y'all watch the trailer for this movie? Yes. The, 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 the trailer makes this movie into a jump scare horror fest, yeah. which it is actually, which it is very much not. And more drastically different than the actual film than I've seen in a trailer in a long time. And I, and I can't, entirely put my finger on what's going on there but there is a there's a it's clearly a, a thought from the studio that this movie is is gonna sell as kind of as kind of genre horror in a way that it is and also isn't uh it is less of a jump scare movie than i i expected it to be and works more at a at a kind of psychological and emotional level and and is there's a gen- there's a gentleness to it while it's also very slowly twisting a knife in a way that um was surprising to me yeah but i i think uh, you know part of <clears throat> part of where that marketing works though is um you know this this is a this is a film that i think uh did very well in the african american community and i think that for again, for us, this is a fundamentally terrifying film, um, right. and so it it does work as a horror for for the target audience. Um, and I and I think that while it's yeah, while it's not a constant um, you know boogeyman behind every corner kind of film, um, the the depths of the of the psychological horror that's that are created in this film. Um, I really do think it, it it worked with. I think the marketing works for, um, you know, who who's actually going to go out and see this film? You know, before it before it got all of the kind of critical acclaim, you know, this could have been a film that only black audiences went to see. It still would have made its money, but sure. um, but you know, I think I think there was a I think there was a, an intentionality of. Who's who's the target audience for this? So, Derek, this is this brings me to a really interesting sort of thought that I've I'm going to start that again because my thoughts are not that interesting. Um, this brings me to a question that I've been asking myself, which is um, the as Matt said to, at the beginning of the show, this movie has sort of entered into this, like cultural conversations and has become like a hundred different memes um, and has like has landed in the target audience um, and embraced, but there is the, the secondary and tertiary audiences that are also embracing this movie and using the no, 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 no gif like on their tweets <laughs> and, uh, and like, and calling things the sunken place. And like, I'm, I'm just, I'm sort of astounded by the ways in which this movie has, um, has entered into the particular parlance of everyday interactions, especially online interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do you how do you explain the fact that this is sort of moved out of the target audience into a wider conversation? And is it in some ways just more appropriation? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I, I, I think there's a couple things here. One is that it's it's an entertaining film, and I think like that that part of it shouldn't you know it is it is nominated for best picture. I, I don't think it'll win, but you know it, it's a good film. I 
mean, I think that's that's a big part of why it's it's uh, in the cultural zeitgeist is because it's it, you know there are funny elements of it. There are great performances in it. Um, it's it's a it's a great film. Um, so there's there's that piece of it. I do think that there is you know there's a I think for a lot of uh, white people that I've seen commenting on this film, there's a kind of uh, laughing at ourselves kind of element to it. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and again, I think that's where, that's where it's kind of like for, uh, a, for a white audience, I do think that this feels more comedic. Like, oh man, aren't we terrible? Um, and, and just kind of laughing at, laughing at themselves. And, and I, I you know, is that, is that appropriation? Um, I, I would say it's less appropriation and more missing the point. And right. I think it's more, you, you need to be having, watching this film in dialogue with people of color um, so that you are, you know, uh, you know, so that you're not missing the t- absolutely terrifying element of this film. Um, I, I think there's, uh, you know, I think there's a, a piece of, um, you know, uh, there's a, you know, a, a lot of times where I have seen people referencing the sunken place is white people talking about black people who don't seem to be, you know, uh, people like uh, Omarosa. Um, who was part of the Trump administration, people like uh, Sheriff Clark, people like Ben Carson, you know, and, and white people getting to throw jabs at black people who, who just don't seem to get it um, instead of doing self-analysis of what the film actually is saying about what whiteness does to the soul and psyche of people of color. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm scared that this movie is going to become like that scene in in Get Out where the dad is talking to Chris and saying like, yeah, Jesse Owens really did it. You know, <laughs> like he, he really stuck it to Hitler, didn't he? Like, isn't Jesse Owens great? Um, and at some point there's going to be like well-meaning white people performing their wokeness by saying to another black person like, oh man, wasn't Get Out great? Yeah, like, exactly. You know, sure. and and it's like, oh lord, like this is, it it seems to have within it some prophecy, yeah, like built into how it will be embraced by a group of people who who can't fundamentally understand its terror at the center of it, yeah, and yeah. that's why I think he gets, I mean, so that's why Jordan Peele gets so, um, I think a little bit bristly about it. Yeah, and I and I think I think that's you know one of the things that I would say the church has to offer in this conversation is um, one of the ways the church can use this film is to really invite conversation um, across across racial lines about how people are perceiving this film hmm. uh, um, because I I really feel like you you can't. I, I, I guess I'm imagining that it can't fully be appreciated in a completely white space that you need the out, you need a outsider perspective or, or I guess insider perspective on, on why this film is, um, 
truly the the piece of psychological work that it is. Well, maybe that's a good segue for us to think a little bit about how we might use this film in um, a preaching context or how at least it helps us think about the lectionary text. So let's let's move on. But before we do that, we are grateful for our partnership with The Christian Century. We want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. In the newest issue, J. Dana Trent examines why young people love friends so much. Matt, Adam, Matt, they do. People love friends. Yeah. I teach college yeah. students and they all watch the friend they all watch friends and the office they're all obsessed with both of those shows i have no idea okay. they all like none of them are old enough to have watched them when they were on tv but all of these college students it's the only reference that i can use in class i don't have any friends references cuz i never watched that but like the office references it's it's the only thing that i can make um only reference i can make that actually makes any sense to them so did they come to the office through gifts I feel like a lot of through, my through Netflix. Through Netflix, it's all okay. Netflix. I feel like a lot yeah. of my internet is mediated by gifts from the office, and so I just didn't know if that was like the entrance point. Yeah, no, they all watch it on on um, uh, yeah on Netflix. Okay, it's crazy. I don't understand it. All right, well, so you know, go to the Century, check out uh, Trent's article on Friends, and uh, and and weigh in. And if you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Christian Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for year B, Lent 2. We have God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. We have Paul reflecting on Abraham's faith in Romans 4. We have Jesus telling Peter to get behind him, Satan. We've also got the worshipful language of the second half of Psalm 22, more commonly known from its opening with the cry of dereliction. So, Derek, Adam, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting for you or helpful to you, given the themes of Get Out? So, um... I was uh, actually drawn to the second half of of Mark 8. Um, For those who want to save their life will lose it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I, the the whole premise of Get Out is the idea of, of saving, saving life, saving the life of, saving the, 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 more valuable life of white people in in the bodies of black people um and what does it mean to to really sacrifice your soul um for the sake of this kind of physical eternal life and i, I was really that idea just really captivated me as i was reading you know um as I was reading the scripture, like that just kind of jumped out at me of um, the things that we think are, are saving our lives are really actually destroying our souls and destroying, not just destroying our souls, but destroying the humanity of others. Um, when the, when the way of the cross is, is self-sacrifice is to let go is to um, uh not hold on to life in a way that would be detrimental to ourselves or to others. 
yeah, that's so that's really rich. I I was in a class yesterday and I was teaching a a little bit about the epic of Gilgamesh and at the end of the epic of Gilgamesh he like he finds Gilgamesh finds this plant and it's going to allow him to be young again. And then a snake steals it. But even like like central to our stories is this deep desire to like want to go back. Mm. Like like to live a life, learn everything we need to learn to live the life and then go back and get to do the life over again. And in some ways that is that's like it's an opportunity to be a mini god. Yeah. To have this like all knowing issue or like all knowing power. And and to see like the, the needs of white people not just to be in power, but to be gods yeah. in this movie. And um and to and to use the bodies of others, of black people in particular, as as gods flies in the face of, of Jesus's point at the end of, of, of Mark eight. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of fundamental the the problem in that in the Armitage family and the white family there is that they don't want to embrace their own mortality. I mean, they it 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 has all of these terrible consequences, and obviously all of these kind of it exists within some tremendous structures of racism. But what they what what they don't want is to to let go of of life, and so the the consequences of that become tremendously damaging and violent um but there is something that i think it connects well to um to to peter's sense that like uh uh that that jesus begins to talk about how he's going to have to die right and 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 uh and peter doesn't want any part of it and th- that Peter's refusal to enter into a conversation about Jesus's death is then labeled as satanic. Uh, he, he, which is, you know, we're now, we're sitting here two days after Ash Wednesday, the service where we presumptively uh, are, are meant to be embracing and recognizing and naming and kind of owning our mortality. Mm. Um, the degree to which that is, that is liturgically and theologically effective. I don't know, but it's clearly not working in this movie. very well. <laughs> well, and that's the funny thing. I think what, what I think makes Jordan Peele such a good writer and director here is that he, he seems to understand that, that poor people, people in subordinate positions within the world have a very complicated relationship with death. Death is a sort of constant specter in their life in a way that, um, that people in power get to hide it. And so mm. if, if you think about Jesus and his, and his relationship and the way that he talks about death, sometimes death is an enemy and sometimes death is a friend. Sometimes death is a mother. There, there are all of these different forms that death takes. But for people in power and for white people in, in Get Out in particular, death is only ever an enemy. And it's an enemy that you have to slay yourself. And if you need to use the bodies of other people to do it, so be it. But um, but when death is always an enemy, you're always scared of it. And the fear of death drives you to all of these different things. And Jesus is basically saying, I think in this passage, like your fear of death is getting in the way of you recognizing how the kingdom of God works. Yeah. So 
I, 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 let me stay with that passage for just a second because I think I'm, what do you, then I'm going to ask the question to you all. Like, what do you think yeah. is being obstructed? Like, why does he say, get behind me? Why does Jesus say to Peter, get behind me? I, I, so I want to maybe say something that's maybe not inherent in the scripture, but I, I think that there's, um, you know, Jesus has actually been tempted by Satan in the wilderness after being in the wilderness. I think this is actually another temptation that, and it's coming from, and this time coming from a friend, a beloved friend. I think there actually is a temptation for Jesus to um, say, you know what, I, I, I really would like to hit, skip this whole cross thing. Um, I think it was really, you know, um, a temptation for him to say, I, I don't want to go into suffering. It's, it's not just about Peter's. Um, it's not just about Peter's missing the point, which like, you know, most of the gospels is about Peter missing the point. Um, This is, this is about Jesus's humanity as well, you know, and, and that the idea of, of, of foregoing the cross and foregoing death really is a, is a legitimate temptation to him. Um, And I, I, I think that's, that's why he speaks to him in such harsh terms is is this feels like the this kind of temptation he experienced after the wilderness and i'm i'm tempted to to i I would want to look at the the gospel a little more but i'm tempted to think about it in terms of just the the kind of road narrative of this too um that uh in mark i mean it's really especially in luke but i think in mark too we have Jesus on as, as a kind of road trip that is moving from place to place and is moving with a certain degree of direction and inevitability towards the Jerusalem Holy Week Passion Week narrative. And so to 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 say get behind me is to say kind of get out of the way of the 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 story that has got to be told here that I've I'm I am going in a direction and I, I you cannot block the way mm. um but th- that I would feel more comfortable with that exegesis if it was in Luke that has the like he set his face towards Jerusalem right. language um yeah and I would want to look at Mark a little more carefully yeah that's interesting I mean I I wonder like I I, I kept hearing this in in light of the, you know, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God passage, which I, I don't even know where that right. is, but it was just sort of bouncing around in my head as I was, as I was reading this. And I was wondering, like, like in the Luke passage where he sets his face toward Jerusalem, there's like, Jesus has the hand on the plow and he's not going to make a crooked plow. So get out of the way. Like it's, you know, he's not going to go around. He's not going to, there's, he's got to go straight. And I wonder if it's a little bit like what you were saying too, Derek, which is if I don't go straight and I divert, I'm not sure that I, I'm going to ever come back. Yeah. Like I, I, I can't be confident that, um, that that lack of vigilance in the midst of, of my mission 
is enough to throw me so off track that none of this gets done. Matt, what um, what other passages were you looking at? Were you looking at the the Old Testament passages? A little bit. I don't know if this thought ever really came together for me. I'll just lay that out in the beginning. But I was thinking a little bit about this Abraham passage or the Abram passage where God um, kind of um, gives him the new name Abraham and makes him the ancestor of, of a multitude of nations. So this is kind of the the passage that kicks off Abraham as the the overarching patriarch of the long Genesis history. And, you know, Get Out has something to say about the role of overarching patriarchs. I mean, we have the, the kind of Armitage family patriarch who is, whose shadow hangs over this story and who, in fact, kind of is finally revealed to be um, 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 still there in, in this kind of terrible way at the end of the movie. Uh, and I, 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 there's something here about... Um, that I think is not entirely dissimilar from what we've already said about the way in which this family wants to, wants to reject the finality of death. Um, but there's something here about how clinging to that patriarch creates the possibility of a lot of different kinds of violence. Uh, but I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, you'd have to make a pretty strong and 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 careful case to say that um to to say that Abraham's shadow has that particular kind of role in Old Testament narratives i mean as, as, aside from a kind of a general saying that the from a kind of gender standpoint look that that saying that uh these narratives are super patriarchal as a from as a matter of structure absolutely but i'm i'm not sure that you can go from here to talking about you know the the folks from three generations past who still haunt your church uh, <laughs> and the ghosts who roam the hallways of your church like i'm not sure that text quite gets the way i want it to go so yeah. th- there's something there's something in there but i'm i'm not fully convinced of it does that make any sense yeah, it does. I mean, I think parents are like are one of the themes of this movie as well, right? Like, how who are we in comparison to our parents, and and what do we inherit from them? Um, and how are they kept around? And I mean, with Chris, he's he's got this memory of of his mother, and he says he doesn't have very many, but he has this moment of remembering the night that she died, but. It's it's interesting to me that you know that the that the the Armitage family it's a family business you know like the kids are the bait for all of this stuff right um, and so they've been conditioned into this and so they think that's normal or at least they think that it's they believe in it and I you know Adam raised a cane to like think about how the sort of how these structures are inherited I think is a worthy task. All right, I think we've probably about done this everywhere we're going to do it. But uh, Derek, I really appreciate you coming and hanging out with us today and, uh, and helping us think about this movie and helping us, uh, helping us open it up a little bit. Thanks for being here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
All right, now it is time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get one more little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? Okay, so um, sometimes you happen upon sermon illustrations that don't have sermons yet. Um, right, yeah. And so here's the one that I found this week that I was super psyched about because um, I found it really evocative and interesting, but have no place for it. Um, so I... I've been reading about Finnish church boats, as in boats that took people to church in Finland. Wait, is this an Olympic event? I know, I right? This it. is the closest. This is the closest to the Olympic commentary that I'm about to give you. <laughs> Which is so, you know, it, back hundreds of years ago, you would have these um, these Finnish communities that lived on islands, like in in the Northern hemisphere of, you know, on Finland Um, and the communities wouldn't have churches, but they would have to go to church periodically. And so they would build their boats and they would build these big boats. And then on Sunday morning, they, everyone in the community would get in the boat and they would all row to the church. And as they rowed, other communities from other little islands would also be rowing in their boat. And this was, I mean, a pretty amazing thing. So they'd build these boats. If someone had died in the community and they needed to have a burial in the churchyard, they would put the coffin in the boat. They would bring snacks. They would, like, all the kids and all of the families would get in the boat, and then they would row there. And sometimes these boats apparently held, like, 80 people, these big boats, and they're all rowing there. And then they would have church services. And then afterwards— as people were going preparing to like go back to their islands, they would race their boats against other islands. So say you and a community on an island near you were going to go back to your island, you would race a portion of the time, and then this led to some sort of um, you know entrepreneurial spirit where then you would try and build better and faster boats. And I, was, I don't understand, Adam. How do you get to church? <laughs> I usually like hop, like I fight my kids to get the get in the car, and I show up fifteen minutes late. <laughs> this is how I get to church, like a normal American. Like a normal American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I miss I miss the call to confession. This is how I get to church. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, just, but I was so I was so taken by this that that they had these communities that would all row together to church and row away from church. And as a symbol of like a church community, considering how the boat was such a central symbol of the early church. So I've been, I've been turning around that idea in my head, trying to figure out where it's going to go in a sermon or some article, trying to figure out how, how the the finished church boat is going to make an appearance. So that's what I got. How about you? Yeah. I mean like the, 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 Boat that we all rode together to get to church kind of writes itself. Right, it's good, the, right? The, the the racing home afterwards, uh, there's something there. I yeah, outdoing each other though. in righteousness or something. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's something there, but I, yeah. The race I'm well sure. run. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's what I'm thinking about. Adam, have you ever uh, gone to church on Sunday and heard a really good sermon that was also exactly not the sermon that needed to be preached at that moment yes yes 
Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, like the the exegesis is fine. The the illustrations are good. It's compellingly delivered. But like whatever is in the air of the church or of the culture or whatever is out there is like totally unaddressed. And so the the problem is not inherent to the sermon, but like the choice to give it at that moment feels off. Right. So this is how I feel about The Darkest Hour <laughs> starring Gary Oldman. <laughs> Which has been nominated for a Best Picture, and which I and my movie pass card went to see earlier this week. Which is like, I, the movie is not bad, but I'm just mad at it for existing in this moment in time. So I've been thinking a lot about like, what is the difference between a, a piece of work, a piece of art, a sermon being, being good, and a piece of art being vital. Because it feels to me like like Darkest Hour, even though it kind of formally doesn't necessarily look or feel like an old PBS production about World War II, it kind of is at its heart an old PBS production about <laughs> World War II. And it feels like what the culture needs now is definitely not kind of lionization of... Powerful figures. Of, yeah. of, of, of famous white men from history. Uh, um, and and the lionization of the power of white men to command language at just the appropriate way to do some great work. What we need are stories about movements and otherness, <laughs> and yeah, and communities uh, coming together in order to you know right affect Which, change so this, positively. Yeah, I, I guess if this movie had come out and didn't have any traction i think i would probably be less annoyed at it so i guess my annoyance is with the traction that the movie has uh some of which seems just built up in the the inevitability of gary oldman winning best actor which feels like an award given for his body of work and not necessarily just for this impersonation of winston churchill uh, but i've been trying to kind of put my finger on what has bothered me about the movie as I was watching it and afterwards. And I think this is what it is that it's, it's, it's not necessarily that the movie itself is formally bad. Yeah. I don't think, I think 10 years ago, this movie would not have bothered me anywhere near as much, but there's something about the moment. Not that every movie is going to, is going to have the sense of zeitgeist that get out has, but at least something that that holds up a different kind of um a, a different kind of sense of heroism in the world than than this does uh i guess is what i'm clamoring for so that's that's what i've been been wrestling with yeah you could do a I'm double thinking feature. about you know it's it's a, it's a it's a homiletical challenge it right? is you can do a double feature of this and the king speech as like oh, yeah. <laughs> movies that no one's gonna watch 10 to 15 years from now Right, um, movies for which the jo the genre is best picture. Right. Uh. <laughs> That's right. I think. I mean, sometimes the way I think about this with respect to, to preaching is like preaching that that is imbued with some sense of kairos time. You know, like that it right. it's it's they come at the appropriate times. Like, and that's that's the that's as important as the sermon itself is did 
it come at the appropriate time. And I think for a lot of preachers, that's like, that's such a hard thing to try and figure out, which is, can you not just write a good sermon, but is it the right sermon for today? Right. And it's, you know, I, I get that it's different. A filmmaker puts out a movie every couple of years at best. Uh, uh, and like a, a, a preacher is not engaged. Like most preachers working in parishes are engaged in a kind of long form conversation. So any given week is not the sum total of, 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 of that theological dialogue. It's just a piece of it. Uh, yeah, but, but I, I think we do need to sort of recognize that like the good sermon that you preached just came at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, and, and we have to be willing to entertain that idea that, just you just it was great and had you had you preached it you know four months from now it you know it would have started a movement but you didn't which is a bitter pill to swallow i suppose (laughs) (laughs) but um but is an important part of the equation of of why sermons act the way they do and what effect they have on the life of the, the church so when gary ullman wins best actor and god help us if Darkest Hour wins Best Picture, which I, I do not no, think it, it, will. I think it, it will. I think I think it is there because it, it just there is something inevitably Best Picture nominated about that movie. It's yeah, that and Dark Kirk, same thing. You know, so oh, but much different movies though. Yeah, much different much movies, different. totally different movies. But you know, historical picks that are trying to do that have something that makes them stand out. And Dunkirk, it's the sort of scope of it and the storytelling, but also in. Howard's Gary Oldman's performance. Yeah, you know? although I think I think Dunkirk is doing a lot more interesting things with the the historical moment that it's interrogating than Darkest Hour is, and I think if Darkest Hour pairs with anything in the Best Picture nominee list, it's the Post. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, as, as the kind of like prestige history drama films that are about great heroes of. Of white of white past, <laughs> um, and 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 that have this like are both well executed and have this over just this overbearing feeling of oh my god I've seen this movie before yeah that's good Morton, all right. be continued we'll we'll have a we'll have an Oscar wrap up show afterwards and talk about all of this some more but. Yeah, and when Darkest Hour wins, it will just be me screaming into a void for 45 minutes. It's going to be great podcast content, Adam. All right, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and discuss how we got it all wrong or why we're all geniuses. Uh, We really love to hear your feedback, so thanks for sending that in. Drop us a line on our Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicaljesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Muskowski. Uh, Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Larry Laserdean. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam.